who makes a decision about how young somebody is or how old somebody is when they become a risk factor. I'm of the belief that it shouldn't be Sotomayor, it should be somebody working at the CDC issuing that guidance. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what do we have today? Well, Robbie, coming up today, race as a pre-existing condition, are states right to prioritize minorities for COVID treatments, or is that a step in the wrong direction? And looking to the 2022 election season, more Democrats are shifting how they're running their races, but can they head off a red wave in this year's midterms? Then Robbie is going to give us a quick tour of the metaverse and explain why we should take it more seriously it's going to take some serious convincing for me. And finally, Ricky argues colleges have gone way too far with harsh COVID protocols. But first things first, we're going to start things off with the Supreme Court hearings on the constitutionality of Biden's vaccine mandates. The Supreme Court will hear arguments over President Biden's vaccine mandates for certain businesses and medical facilities. Those policies affect nearly 100 million workers. There are almost two different questions before the court right now. And in in a way, there's a very narrow question before the court because there's already been lower court um, cases that are making their way through. And narrowly, the court is just considering, do they issue a stay of those lower court rulings, which confusingly would mean allowing the mandate to go through? Because right now, if the Supreme Court does nothing, the mandates are kind of halted uh, until these federal courts rule on the mandates. Uh, but they can go much further and actually rule on the constitutionality of the mandates, which most observers think they will. And from my perspective, there's so much focus on the vaccine part of this, like how skeptical or not the justices are of various pieces of the science of the vaccines, or the politics of the vaccines. But I think the bigger story here is how they think of regulation, because basically what's been happening since the New Deal is that the Supreme Court has allowed Congress to cede authority to um, the, Fed, the executive branch to carry out their laws. And basically it says that Congress can say, Here, here's broad authority to the, to the executive branch and the executive branch can interpret that in their own ways. And that's really what's at stake here because essentially like whether it's OSHA or HHS or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid um, have a broad authority that they're interpreting in this way. And a lot of legal scholars think that the bigger thing that's going on here is that the Supreme Court is starting to chip away at the larger regulatory state. So I'm, I'm paying as much attention to that as the vaccine politics here. Yeah, but when I look at some of the things that the justices are talking about, like you said, they're not really focusing so much on the merits of the vaccine. It's more about the federal mandate and the rollout and whether or not the federal government has the authority to do all of this. And one thing that we're seeing is these hearings have been kind of a crap fest. The misspeaking on Sonia Sotomayor's part. We have over 100,000 children, which we've never had before, in, in serious condition and uh, many on ventilators. Lawyers were contracting COVID and had to phone in to the hearings. As far as shortages, Ricky, can you speak to a little bit about how should we be doing a mandate like this when the shortages in many areas, including the hospitals, are so prevalent right now? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing that hospitals are struggling to keep up with the people in beds right now, but largely that's because of a staffing shortage. And, you know, ICUs are not filling up right now. And 
we have an example already in New York of what happens when you impose a vaccine mandate. In October, we did, and 34,000 healthcare workers either quit or resigned or were fired, and that's 3.5% of our medical staff. And these aren't people that are easily replaceable. They had to go to school for it. And I think that it's really potentially silly for us to say, oh, if you're unvaccinated, you can't come into work because at some hospitals right now, vaccinated people who are positive for COVID are treating patients. So I think that this is not really a metric to discriminate on who can help other people if we're in a moment of need and staffing shortages is what it's coming down to right now. Yeah, I think the question here is there are two different questions for me, which is the philosophical case for vaccine mandates and then the practical case. And I think the practical case, I think, evolves over time as the facts evolve. But I think from a philosophical perspective, I agreed and continue to agree with the the larger underpinnings of the vaccine mandates in the sense that uh, there are two different public goods at stake. One is herd immunity, which I think is less of an issue with Omicron and or just even as COVID has evolved. So we can kind of put that aside. But I think uh, hospitals, hospital beds, space in hospitals is a public good. And I think from that perspective, the government has an interest in regulating it and saying, look, is, if there is a way that we can decrease the likelihood that these hospitals fill up, that the ICUs fill up per your point, um, or even that medical staff contract COVID in the first place, then in, from my opinion, both from a legal perspective and a moral perspective, they have the authority to issue a mandate. I think there's a separate question about as we learn more about Omicron, does it still justify a mandate? For example, if everybody's contracting COVID, whether they have vaccines or not, which is a relatively new phenomenon, um, does it still make sense to have a mandate? I kind of treat that question differently, but I do believe that they're on strong philosophical grounds, especially when they issued the mandate before Omicron even happened. You know, for me as a libertarian, I think bodily autonomy is a principle that's really important to me. I also think that the mandates are sweeping and they don't have any nuance for who they're who they're mandating it for. In New York, New York City, for example, a five-year-old can't go to an aquarium without showing proof of vaccination. I think that there's there are some silly versions. And also to say that I, as a young, healthy 21-year-old, should be mandated equally as my father, who's 84 years old and has um, some heart trouble. You know, I think it lacks nuance. It, it takes away personal accountability. It takes away personal choice. And I think that it also implies to Americans and to people people more broadly that we don't trust you to make your own decisions. We don't trust you that you're wise enough to. And I would point out on that note that 98.5% of people over 65 are vaccinated and that's the most at-risk group. So I, I would say that that demonstrates that Americans are capable of making their own decisions and forcing them honestly hasn't been that effective. The New York Times uh, saw that only one in 31 places that they analyzed that put a vaccine mandate through um, had a significant increase of vaccination after the mandates um, of more than 2%. So I don't think it, I think it's an infringement on liberty and it doesn't have a clear benefit. Well, I think if we're putting aside the aquariums and everything and focusing on what this Supreme Court aquariums case is Aquariums are about, important. Yeah, <laughs> but, the, but that's not what this case is about, yeah. right? I think it is silly to require a little kid to wear, uh, to have a vaccine to go to an aquarium. I think it's less silly when it's a nurse, it's a doctor, and they're working in a hospital setting. And I think there's first like the legal part of this, which from from where I sit, when the U.S. is dispersing Medicaid and Medicare funds, they certainly have the the right to attach strings to that, both like just from a practical perspective, but also legally. Like when they when they authorized 
the federal government to disperse Medicaid and Medicare, they gave them a pretty blanket right to attach certain restrictions to that that have largely gone unchallenged until recently, basically saying you can decide what it means to run a healthy and strong hospital and hold hospitals and other uh, medical facilities accountable to that. But then I think of like your moral responsibility. We talk about you know, the biggest we've been talking about for, for a couple of weeks now, the, the data that we want to really focus on now is hospitalizations and deaths from COVID. And there is no contraindicating evidence yet to suggest that the gap between the vaccine and the unvaccinated isn't pretty stark when it comes to hospitalizations and deaths. You know, David Leonhardt and Derek Thompson, two of the journalists that I trust the most, have both uh, shown that, like, there is no evidence yet coming out to say that the unvaxxed aren't anything other than a heavy burden on our medical facilities. And from that perspective, I think that's a public good that the government has an interest in regulating. But is there not uh, any merit to saying, is an unvaccinated 18-year-old the same risk as a middle-aged diabetic? Or is there nuance to just painting, more nuance than just painting the entire unvaccinated population as a public health concern? Um, and I would especially say, you know, the the Supreme Court is charged right now with determining whether this mandate makes sense in the environment that we're in right now. And I think that the data coming out of South Africa and other areas like London that's already seeing the kind of bottom of their uh, Omicron curve, it demonstrates that we have a very different situation at hand. And, you know, taking away people's liberty and their control over what goes in their body and whether they think that's a wise decision for them, especially when, you know, young men, for example, the risk of myocarditis or pericarditis is 0.037% for boys aged 12 to 17 and 0.054% for men 18 to 24, whereas the risk of dying from COVID is 0.001% for 15 to 24. So that's for one demographic, a 54 times greater risk of having an adverse event. Myocarditis can cause long-term damage to the heart. We don't know what that will bring down the road for them. They've recovered from it in the short term, but there could be long-term consequences. So who are we to say that a young man who's healthy that doesn't have any pre-existing conditions needs to get the vaccine the same way that an elderly person does or someone with concerns? And who are we to tell parents who have a 16, 17-year-old boy, no, you don't have the right to make a decision with your doctor for the health of your own child. That's the government's job. Or that's a Supreme Court justice who doesn't even understand even within a close estimate, 3,743 children are in the hospital right now with or for COVID versus 100,000 is what she's saying. So I, I just don't understand how we can delegate that sort of personal decision to authorities that clearly sometimes don't even know what they're talking about. I mean, Sotomayor's comment on the 100,000, I mean, that was very damning. That was very damaging because how can you impose these mandates when you don't even know how many people are in the hospital right now, how many children are in the hospital uh, with COVID? And talk to that for a minute, Robbie, about yeah. numbers. I mean, because all of this needs to be based off of hard numbers, hard science. And it doesn't seem like we're, like, like Ricky was saying, we're not really talking about differences in ages and differences in uh, different groups that are more at risk. So how why is a blanket mandate even something that we're discussing here. Well, I think Ricky inadvertently made the case uh, to take this out of the hands of the Supreme Court because if they mm -hmm. can't get their facts straight, right, maybe we should be putting in the hands of experts who are public health experts, which is essentially the question before the Supreme Court, right? Is it the Supreme Court should take out of the hands of the federal government, the CDC, as unpopular as it is? You know, take, it, take, take an example like 
you know, whether a, a river is polluted or not, right? We wouldn't ask the Supreme Court to decide what level of chemical poisoning is going to reach the threshold. Since the New Deal, we have, as a society, decided that Congress gives authority to an agency. We stack that agency with scientists, imperfect as they are. They're going to get things wrong and they get things right, but they're going to be people who study these things. And they're going to say, all right, that's safe water to drink. And in this case, I view it similarly, which is uh, who makes a decision about how young somebody is or how old somebody is when they become a risk factor, how to weigh myocarditis versus other things. I'm of the belief that it shouldn't be Sotomayor. It should be somebody working at the CDC issuing that guidance, especially as it relates to people who receive federal funds to carry out our whole medical system. So that's like a huge federal interest. And I treat that differently than the aquarium. I think I would, I would want the government to have a very limited, if any, role uh, in saying what that kid should do at the aquarium, but a huge role about what's happening in medical facilities that are largely funded by the federal government. And it seems like the Supreme Court is leaning towards possibly allowing the mandate for the healthcare workers because of that very fact that they received that federal funding. But it does seem like this maybe, is maybe, yeah, maybe. Yeah. But it does seem like they're definitely going to strike down the the mandate for private businesses. And we'll have to wait and see. It'll be probably we don't really know when the decision will come down. And just on that front, it it almost is irrelevant. Like because whether they strike it down or not, mm -hmm. in the end, they'll pro the best case scenario for people who support these mandates is that they let it play out in the lower courts, mm -hmm. in which case it's kind of a moot point anyway. We hope like, you know, by June, we would hope that we're in some different kind of environment here, but who knows? But in, for my sense, that's why the larger regulatory questions are more important. Like the, this is a, a question of the larger regulatory apparatus in the federal government and whether we like so many things, whether it comes to food and drugs, whether it comes to, you know, uh, like the safety of automobiles, like you can go down the list of saying like we have delegated to agencies the ability to regulate. And this is in line with a trend to pull that regulatory authority away from those agencies, which if you're a libertarian, I think you probably like. Um, I'm not quite sure where I come down on the larger question, but I just think that is the bigger trend here that's going to live on beyond COVID. Well, let's move on to another story that's actually very related to COVID here in the state of New York. And it deals with the idea that apparently race is being used as a factor to determine who gets access to certain uh, anti-COVID drugs before others. And I want to read this real quick. It was in New York State under guidelines from the CDC. One of the factors that can be used to determine who gets access to some of these life-saving treatments like monoclonal antibodies and things like that for COVID, it says that non-white race and Hispanic Latino ethnicity should be considered as a risk factor. Now, that sounds very problematic, no? Yeah, um, <laughs> you tell me, Corey. I think like it seems to me like that you can get at these issues by actually looking at the like if if you're saying that certain people in certain populations are more likely to say have diabetes or asthma, why not? use the asthma or the diabetes as a risk factor, not the race. I would also point out that in Utah, it's it's weighed as equally as diabetes as a risk factor, and it's twice as valuable as kidney disease, which is a recognized pre-existing condition that can worsen COVID outcomes, which seems pretty crazy to me. So it's Especially New York, Utah, Utah, Utah and really Minnesota. Yeah. yeah, It's odd that those particular states are doing it. To me, this is interesting because it sounds like they're basically saying that because non-white people have been exposed to, you know, worse health care, that that's the reason why 
they're being given this almost this favoritism towards these treatments. But that doesn't necessarily seem right because that's basically saying that universally every single African-American or every single mm-hmm. Latino person suffers from those things when it's really more about income, isn't it? I would think so. And and I would be even careful about using income because yeah. I think in, income is also imperfect. I think we, we have the ability to measure these things. Mm-hmm. By and large, what's happening is people are being admitted into medical facilities and that's when these the, the, this guidance is being implemented, right? Like when, who decides whether you get monoclonal antibodies? It's the, the medical professional who you're dealing with who ostensibly can ask you questions like, do you have a history of diabetes mm-hmm. yeah. or asthma yeah. and all that? So this seems extremely sloppy. It seems, it seems like it's not well tailored to the situation. And it seems like it possibly has to do with more like signaling from people who, and, and I'm just speculating, who are part of politically appointed offices by yeah. and large. Utah is confusing to me so i'll put that aside but um these are people who are signaling and and i think what what concerns me greatly is like for our society to function right for us to build trust for me this is not compatible with the civic glue that we need in society where like if we're denying life-saving treatment which prioritizing it for some people in a sense is denying it for others if we're denying life-saving treatment to people based on their race yeah that seems like an incredible recipe for distrust and discontent. Absolutely. And I would say two wrongs don't make a right. I find it interesting that systemic health inequality is what they're citing as a reason to do this. But I would make the argument that this is a systemic health inequality if this were to be implemented. And this is discrimination just as much as there is a history of discrimination. And applying that now doesn't revert what has happened in the past and you know i think that we can look at people more holistically than just one immutable characteristic and look at their entire health conditions and everything else that comes goes into what their COVID outcome is going to be um and i think that this is really reductive and if anything it's just gonna harm trust in the health establishment for sure we reached out to the new york department of health uh, about this particular issue and they did say quote no one in new york is being turned away for life-saving treatment because of their race or any demographic identifier this guidance is based on cdc guidelines that show covid mortality rates are higher among certain demographic groups including senior citizens people who have compromised immune systems and non-white hispanic communities but the problem here is that they're basically saying okay covid mortality rates are higher among non-white slash hispanic communities but they're not saying why. Like the why would be, oh, okay, because this particular group has diabetes more, like you said earlier, or this particular group has hypertension more. But like, again, shouldn't we attack the fact that those things and those qualities are the reason why those people were dying at higher rates? It wasn't just because they were black or just because they were Hispanic. Yeah, there's actually a part of the quote that I also want to read, which says the New York State Department of Health is instructing healthcare providers to consider an individual's health-based risk factors when providing this treatment as requested additional doses from the federal government, yada, yada, yada. Basically, what they were saying in this quote is a non-answer to the question that we asked them. Because they say, oh, nobody's being denied treatment on the basis of the race. But race is a risk factor and we're we're instructing healthcare providers to consider the risk factors. So it's like they're basically saying we're not denying treatment, but then it's a risk factor and we're telling people to take into effect this risk factor. So it's a really like Kafkaesque quote to me, which only underscores um, that we should be really concerned about this. I think saying nobody is being denied treatment right now, you know, they've set out a a guideline where if we were at a point where we had to ration out um, these sorts of treatments, potentially 
this could become the case where race is becoming one of the major factors at play in determining who gets them, which is pretty dystopian, if you ask me. An epidemiologist at Harvard said, quote, I have not seen race as one of the risk factors for several disease and death. Goes on to say that the reason a lot of African-Americans have died in New York uh, is because the rich people in the more affluent have been working for home while the working class were more exposed. So it seems like there yeah. are other factors here not exclusive to just race that seems to have contributed to this higher mortality rate. And that just isn't being put in the equation here. It seems like they're just kind of doing a blanket statement of saying, well, if you're of this race, then you get access to this first. But what if you're of that race and you're middle class or upper class? Then it seems like you'd be able to sidestep someone who may be white and possibly poor. Yeah, I would just ask somebody who who believes, like, I, th I think it is entirely uh, logical to believe that that there are certain population risk factors. Mm -hmm. But I, I would ask people who who believe in this type of guidance to, to think of some of the most, more absurd examples that can happen, like a person in Utah, you know, white, lower income person in Utah, let's say who has a kidney disorder and diabetes, who then is denied monoclonal antibodies because their score doesn't equate to a more affluent African-American person who doesn't have those risk factors, that would seem like a weird result and, and something yeah. that we should just want to avoid. So let's move on to the 2022 midterms. I'm seeing some reporting about the Democrats and how they're preparing themselves for this particular election year. And one thing that's coming out is that apparently Democrats are not referring to themselves as progressives or moderates as much as they were in 2018. It seems to be kind of a rebranding effort. And how do we think that's going to affect their actual chances? Because, I mean, Republicans have a pretty good uh, position going into this, just just given Biden's performance, as well as just the fact that, generally speaking, the president always loses, their party always loses in the midterms, especially after the first, uh, first year of a presidency. So how do we think that this rebranding effort from the Democrats is going to work? Well, I... I in I welcome this in part because I think the term progressive has become meaningless. I think, you know, as we've done certain some reporting on, whether it's housing density, school issues, et cetera, often the most regressive policies are branded as progressive. That's why we have this whole series called Regressives. I will also say that Eric Adams is a good example of this. Uh, the so-called progressives were saying he wasn't a progressive candidate. Meanwhile, he carried communities of color, low-income communities throughout the city, and his opponents we're carrying Brownstone, Brooklyn, Upper East, Upper East Side, Upper West Side. And for those that are, who aren't from New York, those are the fancy neighborhoods, right? And those mm -hmm. are the so-called progressives. So I think this term has become meaningless. It's often a reflection um, of the sort of elite of the party tag themselves as progressive and any ideas that they don't like, even if it's the majority of Democrats, they tag as not progressive. So in a way, I, I think this is progress. Yeah, I also think going into the 2022 election, it's interesting to look at what young voters are saying. And we flagged this poll from Harvard that found that 57% of young Democrats and 59% of young Republicans think that politics are becoming too partisan. And as the resident Gen Zer and a young person myself, I would say that really goes with what I've noticed about my generation. About half of us are independents, and that's twice as much as the general electorate. I think that, I mean, especially for my age group, the first the first election I can really remember in any kind of advanced way is 2016. Nice. And it was as partisan as possible. It's all we've known. And I think that a lot of us are pretty fed up with that. I mean, yeah. I was also around for some other ones, but I was 12 yeah. when Obama was elected yeah. for the second time. So... 
Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It's, yeah. It's a really crazy time to grow up in. And I think no wonder half of us are independents. Why would we want to participate in a lesser of two evils sort of system, which is all that we've known? Absolutely. Yeah. And that, to your point, the earliest election that I can remember was actually 2000. So I don't know what's going on. I've never understood this system. And one thing. Anybody want to talk about the 88 election? No? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was it Bukakis? Uh, no. <laughs> that was the first election I remember. But uh, before we go yeah. off this, we had this episode, our very first episode of, of this show, we interviewed Richie Torres from the Bronx, mm -hmm. and he talked about this. And he said, you know what? People aren't looking for ideologues, they're looking for pragmatists. Yes. Yeah. And I think about that a lot when I think of this data, especially because I think a lot of people, um, especially if they're coming up at your time, Ricky, have, I think, been inundated with a series of incompetent leaders. And I think people are almost just looking for people to solve problems and be focused on the unsexy elements of governance. But going back to the Democrats in this particular conversation, one thing that I've noticed is that I hear a lot of people in my particular generation, young millennials or the younger millennials, I hear a lot of them say things like, well, a progressive like Bernie or AOC could win in a general presidential election. But then I asked them, okay, well, how come they couldn't win in a primary of a, of, you know, a Democratic primary. And it's like, well, because we don't believe in the Democratic Party. And that's the thing. There's so many ultra progressives who are so progressive, the Democratic Party is not progressive enough for them. So they don't participate in the primaries. And if they don't participate in the primaries, they're never going to be able to get a person like Bernie to that next stage where they could actually be, you know, in line for the presidency. And I think yeah. that's one of the big problems with Younger people is that they don't trust the Republican or the Democratic Party, so they're not really participating in these primaries. So it's these older generations making these choices of Hillary or Trump, and that's why when it gets to the general election, we get so dissatisfied because, like, well, how did this happen? It's like because you didn't pay attention in the primaries. Yeah, well, I, I think it, politics isn't a bespoke exercise, is what I would tell those people. There, there's almost no evidence whatsoever that Bernie-type candidates can win in swing districts in America. For every Alyssa Slocken, Chrissy Houlihan, you know, Max Rose there's a what like point me in the direction of the Bernie type candidates who've won in any type of numbers that you see these quote unquote like dreaded moderates right but Chrissy Houlihan and Alyssa Slacken they have to deal with and, and Haley Stevens and Andy Kim they have to deal with people and these are all members of Congress representing swing districts mm -hmm. they have to deal with an electorate that that isn't on board with every single thing that every progressive says so they have to convince people they have to build coalitions and that's part of politics and you know it's one thing for AOC who I have a tremendous amount of respect for she can say whatever she wants because she comes from a district that will never elect a Republican. And so that's a whole different set of politics. And I think it has been untested at best, this theory. And if, and at worst, it has been totally invalidated by the election results that we've seen over the past few years. And so they need to do the difficult work of convincing people to their side if they're going to make that argument. Yeah. I mean, I would also say in, as much as we're seeing this kind of split between progressives and moderates in the Democratic Party, I think that there's also something similar happening in the Republican Party as someone who comes from the right. I identify as a libertarian and I think there's kind of like a fragmentation between the populist sort of Trump big government interventionist crowd and the small government uh, free market sort of group of people like myself. And so I think that both of our parties are kind of experiencing this um, somewhat similar breakdown in where we stand ideologically. Yeah, to Ricky's point, there, the Republican Party has definitely kind of pushed away a lot of libertarians and small government people, especially in the last few years. And there's also this fragmentation in that party between the people who are so gung-ho for the Trump-type policies and then the people more like 
like Liz Cheney or Mitt Romney, who are still very conservative. They're not moderates by any stretch of the imagination, but they don't like Trump and they don't like what Trump is doing to the party. So now there's this pro-Trump, anti-Trump forces there. And like you said, there's the moderate progressive forces battling out in the Democratic Party. So maybe we should just split all into like four or five different parties. <laughs> yeah, we need more parties. Like, into like, it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, I, like, that's how they do it in the well, Also, countries. Like, Democrats, in order to peel away those voters, obviously there, there are a bunch of voters who just have left the Republican Party because of the sort of cult of Trump. But I, they're mm -hmm. not running two Democrats oh, necessarily no. because of an affirmative no. belief in what Democrats stand for. So I think in part what Democrats need to do is, and I think Jared Polis and there's some others who are offering a little bit in this direction, is tell a story to libertarians to say, uh, we have something to offer you. We're going to decriminalize uh, drugs. We're going to deregulate. We're not going to, we're going to pull back on, on COVID regulations. So I, I think that we need to tell that story or, or this, you know, different politicians of different political parties need to tell that story and I think I need to offer better alternatives. Yeah, that's one method. One interesting strategy, for instance, is the Lieutenant Governor of Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes, who's running for Senate there and he has endorsements from Elizabeth Warren, you know, far left of the party, and Jim Clyburn, who's more of a moderate. And he labels himself as sort of a progressive, but he doesn't like say, oh, I'm a progressive, I'm a Bernie guy. He doesn't really do that. And so I think Democrats have got to, maybe this is a good thing that they're getting away from these titles of moderate versus progressive, because maybe if they can just say, I'm more for the working class, I'm more for this universal base, that will be better for them going forward in these elections. Yeah, I, I, I'm with it. I think anytime progressives uh, lean into a slogan, it's usually a bad thing. You know, I think this would happen with defund the police, for example, and a lot of the, the sort of terms like socialism that we throw around or, or progressives throw around. And so I think it's smart, but I think it has to be replaced by something, right? Like the benefit of a slogan or a moniker like progressive is that at least it signals something to yeah. people. Yeah. So if you're going to get rid of it, you need to tell a new story. And I actually welcome that, but they're just it needs to be replaced by a story. Absolutely. Well, let's move on. Ravi, you have something very interesting that you want to talk to us about. It's something that I don't take very serious, and I think I should start taking it a little <laughs> bit more serious. So, Ravi, talk to us a little bit about the metaverse. Yeah, Corey, I want to talk about the metaverse. And before we broke for the holidays, a story came out that uh, an NFT collector had purchased for about a half million dollars, I think it was $450,000, uh, property rights uh, to be Snoop Dogg's neighbor in the metaverse. And mm -hmm. Uh, really? Yeah. And Snoop had just previously, a few months before that, announced that he is building his own virtual world in a metaverse. And it's going to be out in the, sandbo the Sandbox platform, which is a platform in the metaverse in September. And, you know, Snoop's been tweeting a lot about this. He tweeted, uh, we're on the cusp of a digital revolution and it had some kind of like digital thing, dancing <laughs> and music, his music, of course. And so I just want to take this an opportunity to say, when we think of metaverse, we kind of made fun of meta uh, a couple episodes ago when Facebook made its announcement uh, to change its name. And I think people often just think of it as Facebook. But yeah. meta is so much more than that. And uh, as you kind of teased, I think this is a big deal. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest trends uh, in the next few decades, if not the biggest. Do you think it's going to be more about people working in the metaverse or actually living out a second life in the metaverse? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think it's probably worth taking a step back to say, like, what? It, where does this come from? And 
I think I'm older than both of you. So maybe mm. I remember a lot of the pop culture around this before it was an actual technology. So, yeah. you know, there was this uh, book called Snow Crash, which came out 30 years ago. And then about a decade later, um, we had Ready Player One, which is probably more well known, which became a movie also. They're both basically stories set in, under the premise of moving from 2D, which is the internet that we have right now, to 3D, which is where we're going. And, uh, you know, I think that a lot of people think of it just in terms of Second Life and SimCity and, and a lot of this idea of simulating recreation. Mm -hmm. But there's so much more than that. Like I talked about, there's there's property rights, there's business interests, this, it overlaps with crypto and a lot of the Web3 yeah. stuff. And there are tons of money already pouring into these assets. And uh, a lot of you know smart Wall Street people are, are estimating this is going to be hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars in economic activity in the near term or in the medium term. And that's notable. Yeah, totally. I mean, I saw that the cheapest real estate is selling for 13 grand right now, and it doesn't even actually really physically exist. I don't know. The whole thing is super creepy to me. I don't like it at all. I'm like a 21-year-old Luddite, and I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> um, I saw Russell Brand called it the colonization of human consciousness. I think that's kind of an interesting uh, take there. But like, even there's a religious element, like the Hillsong church is going to start doing services in the metaverse. Like wow. the whole, I don't know, the whole thing is really just kind of creeps me out. It feels like Black Mirror in real yeah. life. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned Ready Player One, but aren't there some other movies like, I don't know, The Matrix that yeah. <laughs> kind of talk about what could happen when we get our consciousness uploaded to a different world like this? And and how do we, how do we protect against like crime in, in, in the metaverse and things like that. Yeah, uh, well, I th a lot of these movies, I think, talk about like the various scenarios that could play out. I think, you know, take Ready Player One, for example, which I think is an interesting case scenario, which is basically the premise of the movie is that there's one guy who creates the quote unquote metaverse and basically he sets the rules. But part of him setting the rules is that there are different planets and galaxies and stuff that have different rules within the rules. So mm. there are certain rules that underlie all activity, but then you can go to certain places where those rules are suspended or whatnot. And I think as a libertarian, Ricky, I think you should <laughs> love this because you could go somewhere where everything's, we could play out all these scenarios and say, we could create a digital COVID and we could say, what happens if there's a vaccine mandate? What happens if there isn't? And then we could play out to say, well, maybe, maybe we don't need the vaccine mandate. Well, I think know? the flip side to that coin is that Snoop Dogg controls all of our lives for the rest of eternity, which I am not really into either. <laughs> Just if you go to Snoopverse though. But I, I mean, think or Mark Zuckerberg's a rather alternative. I don't know. I don't love I don't but love we create, either. Like Iron Randland or something. Whatever you want. <laughs> you create your own place where everything's legal. People could shoot up heroin in the streets and you know, I mean carry you're, you're making a very odd pitch for this, Robbie. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that I'm thinking about is the people like Mark Zuckerberg and Meta as it is now are largely involved in the creation of the metaverse. And when I think Facebook, you know, other than all of the, you know, angry memes that get sent to me by my boomer relatives, I think of cyberbullying. I think of trolling. I think of, you know, a lot of things like that. You know, how does that not get amplified tenfold in the metaverse? I have a theory, and this is this is just my theory. I have a theory that these issues are going to be more well policed in the metaverse because I think one of the underlying um, principles or the the some of the glue that holds together the the current iterations of the metaverse that are being conceived are property rights. Mm -hmm. And I think in part what happens, like Facebook is the opposite of this. Everything's free. It, you can get an account. You can interact with anybody at any time. I think 
what is going to happen on the, some of these near-term versions of the metaverse is that so many of the interactions that happen are going to be within sort of walled domains, for mm -hmm. better or worse, right? I kind of like it because at least it means that you can interact with people on your own terms. Snoop Dogg decides who his neighbor is, you know, in his own created universe. And I think actually you're going to see, I, can, I think you're going to see better self-regulation and also people creating their own rules for their own communities. And I think that will lead to less of the bullying, less of that other stuff. But I, I obviously there's going to be a, a, like just, and that was true that it kind of the early internet too, right? Yeah, if you think yeah, about it, yeah. people were, were interacting on, you know, government sponsored internet, like pre-internet type sites. Then you were in AOL chat rooms that you decided to go into. And then all eventually you're like public for all the world to see when with MySpace and Facebook and all that. So I, I think we're going to go through different iterations of this, but I think people are going to be able to self-select into different places where they can expose themselves to more or less bullying. Well, that's very interesting. Ricky, you also had something that was on your mind that you really want to talk to us about today, and it deals with what's going on on college campuses in relation to COVID. Yeah. Um, so I'm a part-time student at NYU. I'm on a leave right now, but this kind of hits home because all my friends are going back for the spring semester, and a lot of schools around the country have um, implemented really draconian rules about COVID and Omicron. Um, Yale, for example, is not allowing their students to go to local restaurants, to dine indoors or outdoors or any other local businesses, um, even though 42% of their students live on or off campus. So they're trying to create this kind of insular bubble and keep students from businesses that really depend on them. Most of the college towns are built around uh, the students sustaining them economically. They've already struggled so much with lockdowns and school closures. And, you know, there's some other honorable mentions. Georgetown is demanding that students uh, quarantine for 10 days versus the CDC's recommended five if they test positive. Uh, Master recommended outdoors in Cornell, even though we've known that's scientifically unsound. Um, and at UMass Amherst, they're actually required outdoors. And at Princeton, students can't leave the country unless they have a really exceptional reason to. Um, and, you know, this is a really low risk population. And I think that this whole thing is just it's really strange to me because I don't think my private life as a student is really up to my college to dictate. And I think it's a really strange role reversal, honestly, because since when are the students not consumers in this relationship? Yeah. I don't know what they're doing, to be honest. I think, I, 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 I wonder, like, what do you think, like, the conversation internally is? Like, as so, I'm, I'm just as skeptical as, as of these regulations as you are, or these decisions by these universities. Is it just a straight, like, risk factor thing, like, for the adults? Like, what, what's the, what do you think the justification is? Because obviously the, the kids are not that much of a risk. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of it's just trying to limit liability because a lot of the schools are having huge rates of COVID and Omicron circulating on their campuses. And like potentially if someone had a really big adverse effect, could the school be held accountable? Um, but, you know, I think a lot of the schools, we do have Zoom classes. We've done that. Um, I know at NYU, there's still some hybrid classes. And if there's a professor that's at risk, let that be an online course. Like, right, I, yeah. I just don't think that this is an excuse for colleges to all of a sudden be policing what we do in our day-to-day -day lives, where I get my food when I walk home from class to my apartment that isn't even on campus, which, I mean, NYU is not doing that, but I still think, you know, these are also schools with vaccine mandates. So I don't know. At what point do we just say, okay, college kids, most of them have had Omicron, I would guess. That's not I, I guess I can't prove that, <laughs> but a lot of them have had Omicron. We know that. And what are we doing? Ruining their lives further. This is a group that's had really bad mental health yeah. outcomes with lockdown yeah. and isolation and forcing them to quarantine and lockdown further. 
I just, I think it's ridiculous at this point. I think college kids get a number of diseases beyond just Omicron. But when <laughs> I was in college, I had to sign a lot of paperwork, but I never had to sign anything that said you can't go to a restaurant outside of campus on your own. Right. And think about what that's going to do to these communities that, like you said, are built around these colleges, the, these restaurants that depend on college students. Now they're saying you can't you know, go to those restaurants. That's going to make it very difficult for those places to stay in business. Yeah, it's just it, it's short sighted. And I think a lot of you know Yale is a good example. This is a, a, a university that has had a complicated relationship with New Haven and I think this is only going to further complicate that because that is a university that is embedded within the city. It's not a campus that's off-site somewhere else that you have to drive to. It's like the, the businesses and the university buildings are side by side, and those businesses don't really have any other customers other than the students. And so this is silly. And I think, you know, in a way, like banding classes, like I, I was at the, outside of UVA over the summer, um, and I think it was just as uh, it was two summers ago as COVID was cresting uh, mm -hmm. over the summer of 2020, but there were like students kind of in and around campus and I was watching them. And, you know, even when they cancel classes and allow kids to congregate outside, the kids kind of leave by and large because they can do remote almost anywhere. So I'm a believer in just get the kids in the classroom. I love your solution, which is like tailor it. I think we can do a lot of this in the K-12 system too, and just say, all right, most of the professors should be fine. The ones who don't want to, and a lot of them probably want to teach in person, yeah. by the way. And then everybody else, like, just do it online anyway, but get the kids in a room, you know, yeah. with a TA, a younger TA maybe managing at all who's got less risk factors so the kids can still have that in-person interaction. Yeah. Because we're going on year three of this damn thing, and, you know, we can't keep depriving kids of educational experience. Absolutely. Well, great conversation. Uh, Ravi, I think you wanted to address something from our last episode. Yeah, uh, I we had a, a, a listener who sent us a message on Instagram basically uh, talking about the Chicago school closures. And, you know, one positive update is kids are going to be back in school tomorrow. I think they Great. reached a deal to get kids back into the school. Uh, but this listener who's an activist in Chicago or self-described activist uh, said, look, like th this issue is way more complicated than you guys uh, painted it to be. And it was not uh, merely a problem of the unions or even a problem of the unions. It, the school district, you know, really botched testing, for example. And and the user pointed out that it seemed like in our conversation that I was implying that the goal of uh, the union was to to shut down school. And that was the end in and of itself. And so just addressing that, like, I, I have a lot of criticism for the union. I think, like, a lot of the things I said are true. Uh, like, for example, that they, you know, in the end, uh, fought to allow unvaccinated teachers into the buildings, and there was a larger critique there. But I think what the 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 user pointed out, which is there was all sorts of incompetence from the district, which is the responsibility, I believe, of the mayor of Chicago, can't go overlooked. And I should have spent more time on that, especially there was this whole really crazy and stupid testing attempt that they did, which took a lot of resources and didn't go as planned. Uh, and and this is a fight that goes all the way back to the election of this mayor um, when the union went on strike and we could spend a whole episode on it. But I just want to shout out that listener for sending us a message and they sent us a whole bunch of articles that I still need to go through because they sent them last night. But that's the kind of engagement we like. Keep sending us stuff and, you know, whenever possible, we'll uh, address things on air if you poke holes at some of the issues that we have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you all for watching us today. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and rate us on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you. We'll see you next time.